Chapter Six of the Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Six. So they sailed away. The familiar shore on which their cottages stood disappeared, and in the fresh land wind the boats cut easily through the choppy sea that foamed about their bows. Far up the fjord could be seen other square sails and topsails coming out from the inland districts, and outside new Lofoten boats emerged from bays and inlets and turned out toward the open sea. They were setting out on the familiar voyage northward, those hundreds of miles in wind and cold and blinding snow, the same voyage that their forefathers had made through long past ages. On board the seal, Elesus Hilla and Henry Robben were in the stern with the headman, the one to mind the sheet, and the other the bailer in stormy weather, and Canelis Gumon stood forward by the tack, for he had his wits about him in the case of need, and, moreover, was unequalled as a lookout in the dark. The winds howled and whistled as they sped along. There was a sixth man in the forward part of the boat with Lash, and this was the first time he had set foot in a Lofoten boat. He was a pale fellow with a tuft of rusty red beard beneath his chin and gold earrings in his ears, and his name was Arndt Osan. He was from up the valley and had married and moved down to the shore, and now he was going to take to the sea and go out as a Lofoten man. Well, people said to him, if you're going with Kristaver, you'll find life a little different from what you're accustomed to. There was a helpless look about him as he now stood in his big sea-clothes without an idea as to what he had to do on board a boat. "'What do you call that?' he asked Lash, pointing to a line running from one edge of the sail through a block in the bow and back again to the other edge. "'That's the bowline,' replied Lash. "'And that?' It was the line from both ends of the yard that the men in the after part held. That's the brace, said Lash, feeling no little pride in being able to teach a man who was much older than he. And that, said Arndt, pointing now to a triple rope in the middle of the lower edge of the sail, which was made fast to the mast. That's the priyar. Footnote. The rigging of these boats, as also the type of the boats themselves, is similar to that used in the time of the Vikings. End of footnote. Arndt pressed his lips together. He already knew more than he had known before, and he must consider it seriously and thoroughly. The other men stood with legs apart, chewing tobacco and enjoying life. The boat rocked beneath them, and the wind sang in the rigging. They were out of the reach of tradesmen and banks. They were on the sea once more. They were free men. As yet, however, while they were in the fjord, the big Lofoten boat seemed too large. It would be different when the land fell away on both sides, and waves from the ocean itself dashed against her. She would wake up then, as it were, and heel over with the weight of the bulging sail. She pitched slowly up and down, and a wave beat against the bow and sent a shower of water into the forepart of the boat. Both hull and rigging trembled, but the seal went on her way. The men looked at one another, 
wiped the water from their beards and laughed. This was real sailing, and they felt a thrill of delight, so what was more natural than that they should look at one another and laugh? "'Do you think there is going to be a storm?' asked Arndt, turning to Cornelis with a face that had become still paler. Cornelis kept a serious countenance when he answered, "'Well, it does look rather bad.' "'Can't you ask Christopher to put in to land?' "'You'd better ask him yourself,' said Cornelis, with the same serious expression. The blue light of a winter day was over land and sea. On the east stood the mountains like an irregular, misty-gray wall, rising into the sky, cleft by ravines and passes, and with here and there streaks of snow and gray clouds drifting over the higher peaks. Bays and fjords ran up into the land, and outstanding promontories were washed by the never-ending billows. Flocks of dark and pied seabirds sat rocking on the waves in the cold wind, and screamed in delight over the glorious weather. On the west rolled the grey ocean, and tossed its white spray high into the air above an island or a solitary upstanding rock. Two or three blue-white gulls sailed over the seal and cried into the wind, "'Ow! Ow! Where are you going? We'll go with you northward, northward!' Three of the boats kept in touch with one another, but the fourth, the storm-bird belonging to Andreas Ekra, had stolen ahead some time during the night, as was her custom. A few boat-lengths to windward was a sea-fire with her striped sail, and Peter Shusansa at the helm, at one moment inclined toward the other boats, so that all the yellow oilskins and bearded faces on board were visible, at the next swung over by a wave, and nothing to be seen but sail, white shear-strake and brown bow. A little to leeward was the sea-flower, with her tall tanned sail. Jakob with a limp held the tiller. His black hair was covered with a red woolen cap instead of a southwester. When the spray dashed over him, he would take off the cap and beat the water out of it against the side of the boat. He was blessed with such an abundant crop of hair that the cold did not easily penetrate to his skull. He was in the best of tempers today, for he had a home in Lofoten as well as in the south, and in fact was at home in any place to which it was possible to sail. The wind increased, and the sea grew rougher. Gusts of wind beat down from the mountains and made the boats heel over so that they flew along on their side and showed their keel. "'What's the matter forward now?' shouted Christaver, bending down to look under the sail. "'Arnd Olsen wants to go ashore,' answered Lars through the wind. It was Christaver's first real sailing day with the seal, and he stood with every sense alert, trying to make acquaintance with the boat. He swung the tiller backward and forward above his head, watched the waves and the rigging, felt with his feet how the boat yielded to a steady wind, to sudden gusts, and to waves. He felt there was something wrong, the boat did not go well, and there was not the right accord between the rigging and the boat. Women and horses have their caprices, and so has the boat, and he meant to tame her. The seal was quick to answer the helm, and with every wave and gust of wind he knew more about the boat than before. 
He turned his quid between his front teeth and grew more and more alert. He forced the seal up against the light wind and slackened down in a heavy one. He had to learn to know her, and it was like tuning a violin. "'How do you like your new boat?' Jakob shouted to him as the sea-flower ran up alongside. "'Ah, it's too early to say anything about her yet.' But the two companion boats began slowly to pass the seal. At first it looked as if they were lying still, one on each side, only riding the waves and foaming at the bow, but by degrees they crept on and on until they were well ahead. Kristavr's face darkened, and he leaned forward as though to drag the seal with him. "'You must give our best respects to Lofoten,' shouted Cornelis over to the others. "'Hold your tongue, you idiot!' cried the headman, stamping on the thwart. They had still some way to go in open sea, and the water was dashing over the waterboard so that the men had to bail. "'What's the matter forward now?' cried the headman, and Lars's voice answered through the wind. "'Aunt Olson is ill!' The sea-fire and the sea-flower were now some way in advance, but Kristavr began gradually to gain upon them. He could see, however, that they were sorry for him and would not leave him behind, and that was even worse, and he choked with rage. No greater humiliation could befall a headman. They sailed in among rocks. They had to pass through channels where the trading stations came out into the water on piles. Goodness only knew where the people lived who came there to buy. Then open water again, and on the wind-swept shore of a bay in the grey mountain wall stood a few houses with smoke rising from their chimneys. If mother lived there, thought Lars, she would go quite out of her mind. Poor mother, if only Ulf will do all he can to help her this winter. In through more sounds where the wind was so dead against them that they had to tack. Many boats had collected here, and to tack in a channel that was only a few boat lengths in width required incessant going about. Arndt Olson, ill as he was, was put to help with this, but he always seized the wrong rope and was continually getting in the way. "'Go forward, Henry,' cried Kristavr. "'Those fellows need a nursemaid.' And Henry Robin ran forward, stopped under the sail, and helped to put it over when they tacked again. Elesus was quite equal to managing the sheet and braces by himself in the stern. The wind went round to the east when the fairway became broader, and Henry had to go aft again and lash forward, for Cornelis had to take the lookout. The daylight was dying, and it was an easy matter to run aground in the channel. Lars now began to understand that the Lofoten sailor is a little more than an ordinary human being. He has eyes and ears such as no other man has, and various other senses. The dusk deepened, and a lighthouse in the west shot up ray upon ray across the water, making the darkness appear all the deeper where the rays did not reach. They saw hardly anything but the white breakers on rocks in front of them and on both sides, but they sailed on safely, Cornelis peering out over the edge of the boat, and making signs with his hand in its white woolen glove, and Christavr at the helm, forcing the seal to fly along with all sail set. 
the phosphorescence flashed its green light in the foam beneath the bow and the spray that dashed up from islands and rocks was like green flames in the darkness to the east the mountains now formed a black wall and the sea could be heard dashing against it while on the west the voice of the ocean was borne on heavy billows farther and farther out into the night and they sailed on and on northward ever northward rounding a promontory they entered a bay where houses stood at the foot of the mountain with lights in their windows and yellow lanterns gleaming from ships and boats that had anchored in the harbour for the night the sails were lowered the grapnel was dropped overboard and the coffee kettle set over the fire in the cabin it was close quarters for six men on the bunk although they had divested themselves of their oilskins but the bread and butter and the hot coffee were good they could cook food only when a suitable opportunity presented itself. "'You're the deuce of a fine seaman, aren't?' said Canales. And though the little lamp that hung from the roof gave only a feeble light, they could all see that Aunt Olson turned crimson. Lash laughed, Elesius chuckled, and Christaver smiled as he buttered his bread and cut the slice with his sheath-knife. Aunt was not happy, and he had wished himself at home long ago. But then Henry Robin turned to him and said, "'Never mind, Arndt. A master has to start as an apprentice.' It was a much-needed encouragement. There was a trading station with a spirit bar on shore, and they could hear already shouts and cries of men who had had too much. Cornelis wanted to go there, but Christopher said no, and borrowing into the straw in the bunk he produced a bottle and poured out a dram for each man, and then said it was time to go to bed. A little boat rowed past them, and they recognized Jakob's voice. He, of course, had to go ashore where there was any prospect of a fight. The men on board the seal drew off their wet sea-boots, put out the lamp, and with their clothes on, crept under the skin coverlets, the six men side by side with Lash, as the shortest nearest the stern. It was his first night on the Lofoten voyage, and he was to sleep in a draughty cabin, with the wind and the cold coming in at all the cracks. He wondered whether he had behaved like a real seaman that day. His new woolen gloves had become terribly wet in the course of the day, so now he lay upon them, to warm them for the next morning. The weary fishermen were soon snoring to the accompaniment of the wind and the rigging and the deep organ tones of the sea. They may have felt in their sleep that their faces and hands were red and swollen after the long day in the cold and wet, but they slept on, rocked by the waves that incessantly beat against the boat. They may perhaps also have felt something that drew them, both mind and body. They had set out, they were going farther, far, far northward, for many miles. On land there were rows between drunken fishermen and the sailors from the large vessels in the harbour, and now and then a little boat meandered over the bay filled with shouting men. End of chapter 6